we keep on hearing about the fact that consumers are in conversations with brand, right? We keep on hearing that it's a two-way street and everybody's saying, okay, brand have to rethink everything, etc. And it's true only to an extent because what people tend to forget is that, yes, it's a conversation, but as a brand, you are the first one who speaks. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Today, your host, Ben Robinson, is virtually sitting down with Yuri Savashel of Creative Supply. Yuri founded the agency in Zurich in 2015 to be the next generation of branding companies. Yuri is a graduate of the Geneva School of Business, and he likes to challenge convention, so we knew that he would be a perfect fit for this show. In this episode, he and Ben talk about the problems with traditional branding agencies and how Yuri is switching things up. One way he's doing this is through his workforce. Instead of hiring a bunch of people, Yuri is tapping into a network of independent creatives, and this gives his company and his clients access to the best talent at scale. In addition to this, you'll hear Yuri and Ben talk about how Yuri's company went from being a Tinder-like agency to a true creative partner, why branding is the cause and the solution to so many of the world's biggest crises, how brand storytelling differs from other kinds of storytelling, and why it's kind of like murder. And if you are intrigued by that, then stay tuned for today's Branding Masterclass with Yuri. Enjoy the show. Yuri, thanks very much for joining the podcast. wanted to kick off with a pretty broad question, which is, what is the role of a brand in the digital age? Well, if we look at uh, branding before, or the role of a brand before the digital age, it's very much about trust, right? If you were in the 50s, you wanted to go travel to a Hilton. So you thought, well, if I go to a Hilton, I'm going to have a hot shower and nobody's going to rob me. So brand were very much about identifying quality service for people. In the digital age, this has changed a little bit because it's much more transparent, right? You don't need to stay at a Hilton to be sure that there's going to be Wi-Fi, right? If we use the hotel example. So the role of branding is a little bit more subtle. It's more about building up association of ideas, right? If we think about B2C, right? If I buy this brand, what does it say about me? If I am a customer from this brand, what signal do I send to the people around me? Uh, And that's pretty much the role of brand, which is going to be more about increasing the perceived value, right? I think fundamentally a brand is about reducing perceived risk and increasing perceived value at the same time. In a B2B setting, it's still very much about about decreasing uh, perceived risk, right? Let's say you want to buy... uh, uh, machine tools for millions from a new supplier. It's very hard to to decide which one is the best because you look at all the criteria. So the brand is is the thing that's going to make the difference. It's going to make you feel okay. I can trust them. So I think in the digital era, the branding is uh, is more and more about increasing perceiving uh, the perceived value and maybe a little bit about reducing the perceiving risk in a B two uh, B setting. If branding is about creating an association of ideas, then it doesn't really work, does it, to try to micro-target, right? And to, because, you know, we, we might be able to stimulate demand maybe by micro-targeting, but we can't create 
brands by micro-targeting, right? Because as you said, that you know, they're, they're, a, they're a statement about ourselves and a sort of lifestyle that we aspire to in many ways, right? I think all marketing practitioners will not fundamentally agree with what I'm going to say, but uh, marketing is very tactical. You know, it's about defining, you know, your four P's type of thing, you know, yeah. what product you have, what, what price, which channel you use, et cetera. But what we miss most of the time is that th- these, these levers that we can use in marketing, coherent with something bigger, which is what the brand is, right? And which is much more strategic. So what is your positioning? What do you stand for in the market? What are your key message? How do you frame a brand? How do you present it to the world? And once this is clear, the strategic level, then you can go down to the, the operations or the tactic and decide, okay, we're going to distribute our um, our whiskey brand. We're going to distribute it more into uh exclusive concept store rather than in duty-free to show that we are an exclusive brand because we are positioned as an exclusive brand. So I think that two different things, right? And this whole micro-targeting really comes at a, at a very tactical stage. So do you think that, you know, we've seen a, a rise of, you know, some kind of short-term tactical pursuits versus the long-term strategic stuff like brand building? Well, I think we see obviously a lot of uh, short-term type of, of, of tactics anyway, but I think they, they're not going to build brand equity in the long term. Because, you know, I mean, yes, you can increase your followers uh, by 20% in a week, but what does it say about your real brand equity? Maybe not much. What I think is really interesting when we speak about digital era is that, and you mentioned it, we keep on hearing about the fact that consumers are in conversations with brand. Right, we keep on hearing that it's a two-way street, and everybody's saying, "Okay, brands have to rethink everything, etc." And it's true only to an extent because what people tend to forget is that yes, it's a conversation, but as a brand, you are the first one who speaks. You are the first one who speaks, which means you can define who you are, you can frame yourself, you can position yourself, and then people can react to this. They can agree with it, not agree with it, think it's good, think it's bad, and then the conversation starts. But the framing, you know, the positioning up front of a brand at the digital level, it's still a one-way street. And, and I think people tend to really, really forget that and, and kind of just think that the brand is just something that, you know, is going to be a, a completely shared, intangible thing. But actually, it, it first is something that is created by someone. A brand doesn't appear because people think it's their first someone give a direction and then people have association of ideas and then yes the brand is in the mind of the people who are the audience but in order to have an audience you need to produce something first you see what i mean and i think it's something that's completely overlooked in this digital marketing era where you have all those digital driven agencies that just speaks about engagement and conversation but they totally miss the point about what is the message you have and what is the content just this morning, I was in conversation with one of the big digital uh, agencies in Switzerland, and those guys trying to sell me services to take care of my you know, Facebook ad and Google ad, etc. But by discussing with them, and you know, they want to charge you four, five, six, ten k a month as a retainer, and then I'm really trying to understand. And maybe I sound a bit stupid, but what is it exactly that they do? And then it comes down to yeah, we look at keywords and we kind of make recommendations, and you're like, well, that's a lot of money for for just looking at things. But then they're like, yeah, because you know, then you're gonna push some really good content. And I'm like, but who does the content? Oh yeah, this you provide us. So it really goes down to something that was there before digital and is still here after digital, which is 
what you have to say and the value you offer through content is gonna, in my view, definitely overtake all those short-term tactical exercises you can do. And what, what about separating product from brand? If you've got a great product, people will tell each other. So is, and in a world where everything's more transparent, does it shift the balance towards sort of, you know, investing more in product marketing, you know, or, or to put it another way, can you have a media, mediocre product, a good marketing team and be a company with good products and a mediocre marketing team? It depends what your internal benchmark for quality and um, value is. But if you have a mediocre product and a very strong brand, chances that you're not going to last forever are very high. So you, uh, I think from the worst, which will be a fad, to something which will be a trend, to something which might be around, but then it's going to die off, uh, at some point, this is, it's not going to fly and it's not going to be a brand you really would get people to invest in, I, I think. Especially because then you create a gap between the messaging you send, saying, oh, we are amazing brand, etc., but actually the product is crap. And, and, and this gap into messaging and reality needs to be managed very, very carefully in a digital era. You know, back then it wasn't the case. A good product is a key success factor. You need it to, you need it to be in the game, right? But a good product alone, it's not going to cut it. You know, if you have a very good fashion brand or a, a very good academic program, I have some example about this, or you have a very good uh, boat rental service, it's not enough. And, and we see it over and over and over again. We've got companies, big, small, that come to us. They have a really, really good, strong offering, a good customer service, good product, but they just don't manage to generate a premium out of it. And, and then we can help them with the commercial work we do, uh, really to help them well, increase that perceived value and reduce the perceived risk of buying them. But we can only do this because the base product is good. And if the base product is shaky, when, when advertising is basically uh, misleading and lying advertising type of thing, and, and I think it's a, very, uh, it's a very dangerous slope to be on. So, you know, brand starts the conversation, but it is, a two, it, is, you know, it is a two-way conversation. And arguably, the customer is much, much more influential than they were, you know, pre-digital. Yeah. Both in both in terms of you know acting as an ambassador for the product, but also I guess in a sense in shaping the product, right? Because you can get that feedback in a way that you couldn't when you didn't have so much direct access to the consumer. So how much how important does the consumer come become in shaping the brand? In you know in as in like now that that two way street is possible. I think it depends really which type of companies we're talking about in reality. Yeah. In theory, yes, consumers involved in everything, etc. In, in reality, there's only big, big groups that can afford, for instance, different focus group and having different market testing, etc. Only big uh, FMCG companies can afford this. As soon as you are in the mid-side uh, segment, companies don't have the time or the cash to do these type of things. So, yes, they're going to involve the customer in the sense that they will collect their feedback, for instance, upfront, etc. But you won't have that collaborative process. I think there's two schools of thoughts when it comes to involving customers, actually. I'm on the one that have the feeling that you should not involve them too much because people actually don't really know what they want. They don't really know why they buy things. And if you ask them, they don't give you the right reasons. The typical example is the iPhone or the iPad that everybody knows. You know, nobody ha would have said, uh, well, um, I want an iPad. Or I want an iPhone. You know, I think it was Henry Ford who famously said, if you had asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. 
I think we need to be careful with involving too much people in the in the creation process because we need to test it when we can. But from the creative input, I'm not sure how valuable this is. We need to understand who the people are and what they want overall, but I wouldn't make them co-creator. A long time ago, there was a um, very small business in Geneva, actually, that was called Les Monloisirs. And uh, what they do is both rental service, right? So basically, you pay a, a money upfront in order to rent a boat over the summer. Quite expensive because you need to have a boat license. You know, you pay at least, I don't know, 3,000 bucks minimum for the season. And the business was not going so, so well. And uh, the owner asked a bit my help. We kind of had an agreement when I, I helped him out. It's a very, very small local business. If I had asked the current customers, what do you think about the service? They would have said, yeah, it's great. I've got my boats, good money. There's not too many people involved. Nothing to be changed. So this insight is absolutely not valuable from a brand building point of view. However, what we understood was, well, there is money left on the table because this, this business is positioned as a local hobby. Well, it should be positioned as a private club. And if we're positioning as a private club, we can drive the revenue up and we can make it much more attractive for a target segment. So we rebranded the whole thing to Boat Club Geneva, and then which is not original, but which does the trick. It corresponds to what the target uh, audience uh, expects. And then once we rebrand this whole thing to the Boat Club Geneva and, and told the, so the story about an exclusive club in the center of uh, Oviv uh, on which you can be a member, not a client, a member, the sales picked up. And it picked up because we didn't ask the client what they wanted. So that's why I think, yes, we need to listen to customer. Yes, if we see that something doesn't work, we definitely need to tweak and test and try until it works 100%. But at some, some point, you need to take the cut and say, okay, we don't going to do it that way because that's how we can drive a premium. Branding is about driving a premium. And if you ask customers, they're never going to tell you, oh, I would love if this product was 25% more expensive because you tell me a better story about it, even though we know we can do it. Yeah. Is that how you measure the success of a of a brand then? The extent to which it creates loyalty and the ability to charge a premium? The way we look at it, we look at branding from a very business uh, perspective, which is if you do branding, you need to be able to drive a premium on your business. And you need to be able in the long term to lower your marketing cost because people want to be part of it. So you don't have to advertise so much because people want to speak about you be the press, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, uh, I mean, we see it now with the um, EMBA program we worked on in Switzerland. And we really helped them reposition their brand, their whole program. We didn't touch the syllabus, right, because that's not our job. And uh, we've seen an increase in 30 or 35% of uh, applicants. And this is just by branding. And we're talking about EMBA in uh, top universities in Switzerland. You know, so you would think people are rational when they look for EMBA, right? They would look at the syllabus, look at who the professors are in the syllabus, and decide based on the syllabus and the fees whether this makes sense or not. But that's not how people choose an MBA. They choose it because does it tell a story I want to be part of? Is it something I'm proud to walk around with? How do you persuade people to come to, to you? How do you win clients and how do you also charge a premium for the work that you do? You mean us as creative supply? Yeah, yeah. Or, or a branding agency in general? The way we get, we manage to get clients and really build the reputation of the firm, because we only have five years old company, but we're really, really growing strong. It's really a two-step process, actually. It's so simple, but I, I'm happy to share it because nobody's going to do it. You need first to have really clear, good content. And when I mean content, I speak about intellectual property, which means models, framework, analytical skills. We're not selling a vacuum cleaner where I can tell you, try it if you like it, you buy it. 
what I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is our intellectual capacity to to build your brand. So the best way I, I can do I can do that is by sharing with you some models, some framework, some reports, some things where you thought, okay, those guys understand what this is. It's very easy to do. It's very easy in, th in theory. It's very hard in practice because one, you need to have the capacity to do it. Two, the discipline, and three, distribute it. And then once this is done, well, you you distribute it and you share your content to as many people as as you can, and you use that content to open doors. And uh, for us, the doors have been pretty much uh, I don't know half of the startup incubator in Switzerland, some of the top universities in uh, in uh, Europe and uh, in Switzerland, trade associations magazine, trade press, because we provide them with valuable content, which is not selling our service, right? Nobody wants to be sold. Everybody wants to buy. Edouard Bernays mentioned this in his book in the 30s. He was right. Nobody wants to be sold. Everybody wants to buy. And, and, we, have to, and we have to provide that. And we've been very, very good from the beginning, from day one, in investing in content. And I'm not talking about just writing random articles to crowd everybody's Google, but really think, What are the models? How do we look at branding? How do we do branding for B2B, for instance? And then we've done interviews of 20 executives across Switzerland about the question B2B branding. And the result is a uh, report on the topic that we've made in collaboration with the EMBA of EPFL. And once you have that and you go to clients and you say, hey, you want us to help you in B2B branding? Oh, if you want, you can have a look at our report on B2B branding that we've done with, guess what? The second best technical school in Switzerland. The pitch is very high. So now you can have someone who just become a B2B branding consultant, but what premium can he charge? And we are basically reducing the risk, right? In, earlier in the discussion, I was saying a brand is about reducing the risk and increasing the perceived value. By bringing those, these content pieces, we reduce the risk. You think if you're a potential client, okay, if those guys are able to actually publish something with EPFL, it cannot be that bad. So they trust us. So what was, what was step two? Uh, for me, it's one is content. Two is uh, channel, if you want to stay with the Cs. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's content, channel, and then the third C, if you want one, it's, it's uh, closing because then you get the client. Yep. And then after uh, that community, right? Yeah, actually, if you want to foresee, you need the community because, you know, it's getting project is as much about getting than giving. And you cannot have a short-term mentality where everybody you meet is about selling them a project because yep. then you are a traveling sales guy. Nobody wants that. But if you look at it, we look at it a very long term. Uh, and we say, what is the vision for Creative Supply in 10, 15 years? And our vision in 10, 15 years is we want to be the reference in branding, at least in Europe. And if we want to become the reference in branding, we cannot have a mentality where we're just moving from one project to the next, because that is just called cash flow. It's not called being the reference. So we need to grow an ecosystem, a community, to pick up on what you said. And this community is made of what? People we teach at universities, pro bono work we do with young startups that are promising, uh, direct coaching, publication, etc. And we need to have all of this as, as part of our ecosystem. Some will drive projects, some won't. But in the long term, we can become a reference. And a lot of our competitors don't think that way because, well, they have such a high payroll that they're just driven by getting the next project to pay the bills. But since we have a very different structure, we don't have that. I don't need to sell you a... 3D rendering because my 3D guy is sitting doing nothing. I don't care. 
So I can focus on, on growing credit supply as the reference in the industry rather than just getting more projects, which is a very short-term way of looking at it. So community view is a bit also a bit about creating multiple revenue streams, right? But also, one, of the, one of the things you just said there actually was quite interesting because I was going to ask you that when you said you're working with startups, which is you know how yeah. do you monetize startup relationships? And I think mm-hmm. you answered it, right, by saying a lot of it's pro bono. Because I guess, you know, you help them and as they grow, they'll, you know, they well, come back to well, you. Well, actually, the way we deal with startups, we had to draw the line, is uh, we do pro bono work with startups which are involved with sustainable development. So that's very clear. Okay. Any startup who that has that has something linked to green startups, sustainable development, uh, we work, we do typically workshop pro bono with them. Other type of startups, we don't do pro bono, but we cannot uh, do full project for them because we are too expensive and it doesn't make sense for a startup to, you know, spend 50, 100K on a, on a branding project. You know, you just need to be very smart with your resources. What does make sense for a startup is to do a half a day workshop where we can give them the key tools, the direction, the clarity, one, two hours of coaching here and there. The budget uh, remains very, very valid and then they can grow with it. And actually a lot of startups we've helped and some of them, you know, two, three years down the line, they come back and then they got the funding, for instance, and they say, well, now we yeah. really need to professionalize this thing. And then they come back. So I think different type of, of clients of companies have different type of needs. And, and you cannot just sell a full branding and a strategic audit to a, a mid-sized company in uh, Neuchâtel. You know what I mean? So we need to adapt. And how repeatable are some of the, is some of the work you do? Because I think it's, so, you know, it's interesting you've created all these different revenue streams, which is great. But the sort of core engine of, of your business, which is branding work, you know, how, how, off, how, how long-term is that if you find a client? You know, or do you just do a rebrand and then, you know, move on to the next client? Interesting you ask this because uh, you really hit the spot in terms of how we've a bit changed our strategy in the last six months. Is We used to be, I call it, a Tinder agency a one-night stand, or one type of project, right? They come to yeah. us, they have, an, they have a problem. The brand is not clear, the message is not clear. We do the work, and then we bill, and we disappear. And then we move on to the next one, right? the next swipe, to keep the, tin, the Tinder analogy. And a um, couple of months back, we realized that th- there's a few problems with this. Well, the lack of um, stable cash flow is one, but also from the client side, we realized that we did really good work at the strategic level, and then the implementation really, really failed on the clients because they went for the wrong provider, the wrong supplier, they didn't manage the process well, or they didn't have the skills or the time. And it was not so much a question of budget, more a question of, of focus and coherence. And so we thought it's really stupid because then we do all this work, which looks very good on a shiny PowerPoint, and then comes the reality, and it just doesn't look like that. And uh, we thought, okay, let's 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 go away from being a Tinder uh, agency and let's let's become a true uh, creative partner, a branding partner for all our clients, where we handle everything from strategy to implementation. Uh, in agency jargon, we speak about the long tail, which means that you don't do you also do the small things, you know, like a, like a brochure design and a web page design. So we do these things now. It's just that we never do it for clients that need just this. Right, so if someone okay. comes to us and say, "Oh, we need a poster design," we definitely the wrong agency to do that. Uh, but if someone comes to us saying uh, we need a branding and then we need someone to work throughout the year for all needs, like we can really, really be good at that and make sure that we we ensure all the touch points. We work, for instance, with the EEL, which is the private school in in Geneva. We've re- we have uh, really taken this role of kind of piloting 
all their branding and communication effort. And I think it's it's really uh, it's really paying off. In the preparation for this, I was watching something uh, a video of you talking about storytelling. What's what's the role of storytelling in branding? The role of storytelling of storytelling in branding is essentially storytelling is a tool to explain, share what your positioning is to your audience. So storytelling alone depends from your brand positioning. And depending on the story you tell, you can influence, again, the perception and the uh, association of ideas that people have with your brand. I think the main difference between storytelling when we speak about branding versus, uh, you know, movie, stories in movie, is that a story in a brand should never have an ending. Because, you know, in all the movies, you have type of a linear structure, right? The hero does something, then he has some challenge, he fights, and at the end he wins and the princess loves him. And then it's the end. But as a brand, you cannot think like this because your brand, you don't want your brand to end. So your story at, at its heart, at its center, must have a, an ideal, a concept that a brand can never, never fully reach, right? Adidas tells us, for instance, impossible is nothing, which means there's always a way to get something further. So it's a story that never ends. Yeah. You and you don't feel like some of these, some of this storytelling is a bit kind of contrived. In what sense? Contrived? It's a fabrication. It's like, it's, it's clearly a marketing, you know, tool for us to, to engage with the company. It doesn't feel sort of authentic. Storytelling is a bit like, uh, I guess, uh, murder, you know, as long as you don't get caught, it's fine. And I think if you take, I can mention you at the top of my mind, a couple of brands that, I don't know, uh, Ted Baker, have you heard of them? Yeah. Well, they, they, Ted Baker, they, there's no Ted Baker, right? You would assume that that's the name of the designer, right? There's no Ted Baker. He, this guy doesn't exist. Simple as that, right? So there is there's so many, so many brands that, how can I say this, that, that are telling stories that actually are not true. Or Hollister, maybe you know it. It's like a, a bit of a teenage uh, fashion brand. It says that Hollister is from California and was founded in 1922, but actually the brand is not from California and it was not founded in 1922. The, the sad truth, or, or, or I don't know, it's just that, you know, people don't check because imagine how many decisions you have to make every day. And if you had to do a full uh, due diligence on every brand you buy, this would take you a lot of time. And consumers don't do it. They don't do it, one, because they don't have the time, but two, they also don't do it because they don't want to. Because, you know, it's so nice to, to, be, to buy from this Hollister brand from California since 1922. You don't want to know that this is a lie, right? It kills the fantasy of the brand, especially in consumer branding. Huh? What I'm talking about is more consumer branding. I think when it comes to storytelling in B2B, uh, we have to be much, much more careful with the reference that we use. Uh, but the logic is the same. There's a very strong example in B2B, actually, from uh, Holcim. You know, Holcim is a cement company. And I love it because you would really not expect a cement company to be actually be a, a benchmark in branding. So when you sell cement, you basically send stones, crushed stones, right? And those, those are called ready mix. And they all have very rubbish numbers, right? They call LX205, LX206, and those are the product number. And that's how they've been known in the industry forever. And one day, one guy in Holcim thought, well, what if we give names to our cement? So let's call the very strong one Robusto. And let's call the one that's a bit red, Rosso. And they, they spin those names, those Latin names for each of the products or some of the product line. All the industry laughed at them. They took the piece saying, 
can you believe you are selling LX200? Why do you need to call this also? What do you think you are, Nespresso, right? But the client didn't think that way. They thought, this is very good. It, the, the red one is Rosso. Everybody knows what I speak about. I like it. So then what happened next is the clients of Holt, of Holtzim, but also of other um, cement company, went to other cement company and say, hey, uh, we would like to buy some Robusto and some Rosso from you. But the company had no choice to say, oh, sorry, those ones are from Holtzim, but we have LX205 for you if you like. So the story is very different. Uh, we speak about ingredient branding in, in technical terms. And so I think you can tell story at so many levels. It's just they're different, right, from a B2B or B2C. What makes a good hotel brand? Because I noticed that you, you guys work with a lot of different hotels. What story should a hotel be selling? What, what, what are the association of ideas? What's the lifestyle association that's important for a hotel? Hotels have a high in a very difficult situation because, well, particularly at the moment, it's, uh, I think it's a whole uh, different topic, actually. But overall, it's very tough to build brands in the hospitality industry for the one reason that people only stay with you once. And even the best hotel brands out there, and they will never want to share the numbers, but maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 for the best 1% of the customers are actually returning customers. But most of them are just living out of one, one night stand, literally. So how do you build a brand with people who never come back? The industry just doesn't want to accept that, but they still try to build brands based on that operational proposition, which is so dumb if you think about it, because nobody cares about it since you only stay once. So what hotels have to think about, and I think it's, this, this, this virus is going to really help them think through, and I think the strongest and the more, the more agile will really, really survive and, and go well after that, they have to think, if we were not selling rooms, what would we be about? How would we attract people to us? And that's a very, very tough question for most of the hotelier because most of the hotelier branding pitch or communication pitch is, hey, Come to our hotel, great for family, business, couple, or whatever you want. Uh, we are good. We have a nice swimming pool, uh, fast Wi-Fi, and uh, breakfast is included. Come stay with us. This is pretty much the messaging of every, virtually every single hotel brand in the world. Some will throw the word luxury in there or exclusive in there or bespoke or tailored. But they're telling you the exact same story. You take an advert, advertising of Ritz-Carlton versus an advertising of Four Seasons, those things are the same. Just the room design is slightly different. One is beige, the other one is blanc cassé. You know what I mean? So once you start thinking about what the hotel is doing, you know, check-in, check-out and housekeeping, and you start to think, what is our role? Can we be a curator of something? Can we be an educator? How can we contribute to our, our large community, not just the local one, right? What role do we take? And for instance, we work with this client in Paris, building a full new brand for them called French Theory. And... We thought about it saying, well, it's not a hotel brand. We're something between a, public, a media company, a retail company that happens to have rooms. And our role is to relay the cultural and intellectual life of Paris' fifth arrondissement, fifth district. So once you think about a place like this, you're not about, your role is not about selling rooms. That's the outcome. That's what happens next. But if you're about relaying the cultural life of a district, there's so many more things you can do. And that, that's where I think you can build strong hotel brands because people don't come to you because you have a room with Wi-Fi anymore. So yeah, I think it's a bit, I, I know I have a slightly controversial uh, uh, view on, on the topic. We have actually just published, uh, talking about publication, we've literally published last week a, uh, 
a full uh, hotel concept handbook in uh, collaboration with the Ecole Hotelière de Lausanne, which really shows what are the, those trends happening in the hospitality industry, coronavirus aside, and then what are the, the steps you need to take in order to build a, a strong hotel concept, strong hotel branding, ultimately. Is that is what you propose enough to see off the Airbnb phenomenon? I mean, let's, let's, let's pause for a second about how Airbnb fares post-corona, but like, just just ignore Corona for a second. I, I love that you bring this because, you know, what, what Airbnb is doing, it's, it's dematerializing the hotel offering. It's saying, well, you don't need to go to a hotel in order to have a room. You can do this through a different digital means. And a lot of attention has been focused on Airbnb in the past years because most of the hotel revenue comes from rooms, right? 70, 80% most of the time. However, what hoteliers fail to realize is that it's not just the room's business that is being dematerialized. The hotel pickup is now called Uber. The in-room entertainment is called Netflix. The concierge service is called Google Map. The business corner is called Zoom, etc., etc. So the entire offering and added value of a traditional hotel is actually being dematerialized. So if you think about it, you can book yourself an absolutely amazing Airbnb in Paris, like top luxury. You can get picked up with a limousine from Uber. You can have delivered to you some of the top Indian food with uh, Deliveroo or Uber Eats. You can have your personal trainer that comes in uh, to with you to help you do the thing. You can use your meditation app in the morning. So do you still need to go to a hotel? Questionable, right? So once hotel I agree to that uh, analysis, they need to think, what is our role? What can we offer that those digital uh, offsprings cannot? And that's when branding starts to be very interesting because branding becomes a compass for what's next. Maybe to draw a parallel, not to completely speak just about hotels. If you're a hairdresser, for instance, right? Depending on how you frame yourself, depending on how you position yourself, you can offer very different types of services. So a hairdresser, typically before the coronavirus, would say, I'm a guy who cut hair in a hair salon. Right? That's how he would be positioned. Right now, there's no salon anymore. So what are you? Well, you can be a guy who doesn't cut hair without the salon, but that's not a good value proposition. So you could say, well, actually, I'm a guy who knows how to take care of hair. So that's a very different brand promise. So once you reframe it and you say, I'm the guy who knows how to take care of hair, what are the things you can offer? Well, you can have, I don't know, an e-shop e that shows people how, uh, that sells a shampoo to people. You can have a tutorial about taking care of your hair. You can sell a home kit to do braids yourself. I don't know. Then it's endless because your branding is different. And I think hotel, you have to understand that. It's tough. 80% of your business comes from rooms. Why change? Not to go down this rabbit hole too much, but how should marketing branding respond to the pandemic? So you're saying, you know, post-pandemic, you probably have to reposition the brand, reposition the brand promise in some cases. But what about during the pandemic? You know, like, not to, I mean, we could take an example of a hotel if you want, but right now you've got, you've got very little business, I would say almost zero business. Do you therefore just stop marketing or do you? Or do you market knowing that eventually customers will come back and this is the chance to, you know, to gain, share a voice, for example? You know, what, what are you telling your clients? Well, I'm a bit, I'm obviously, I'm obviously biased, right? Because the more people yeah. uh, do marketing, <laughs> the more we're going to go through that, that crisis as well. 
So, okay, so make the case. So we know you're biased. So you have to make a really good case. But, 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 but I can make the case by simply telling you where that we put our money where our mouth is. And we are doubling down at the moment in everything into marketing as a company. We are fully changing our website. We are pushing up new content. We are reaching out to new partners. And we're really doing this using a timeline that, that is really, really fast. Because it's very easy now to just like lack the discipline and just let it slip through one day, two days, five weeks type of thing. And we really want to use that time to, well, number one, stay on top of the mind of everybody we work with. Number two, prepare the after. You know, I see it like the army who's not fighting now. So let's make sure those guys are really, really trained instead of just having everybody chill. And I think that's the good moment to uh, to gain, you call it share voice, we call it awareness share, but same thing, right? When everybody's panicking, you need to make sure you're not. And we can get more visibility, get more publication out there, get more leads. I don't expect much in terms of business conversion in the next six months. I think it's unlikely that we're gonna, we're not going to do a record year. This being said, uh, we just uh, had a very a major project coming in literally next week that we just signed in the middle of the pandemic uh, for a client who's launching a robot, a cobot it's called, which is about automatization of supply chain for food. So some industries are very resilient, and those industries will need branding as well. And those ones are also pushing their, their branding. So yeah, I think that's what that's what brands have to do it. You know, I mean, besides the obvious survival thing, which is about protect your cash and make sure you don't go do anything stupid, if you can afford it, I think it makes so much time to reach out, but not into a let me try to sell you my product to survive type of way. Because you know, it's very, you, you should never try to sell something when you are needy because people feel it. Uh, however, yeah you can share a lot of value to a lot of people. We've been organizing a couple of online sessions for free, actually, to kind of uh, give people advice about how to run with the brand during this time of crisis, uh, simple personal branding, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and we have grown our audience. I think we have, I don't know, three, 400 new people in our database since the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know if it's a lot or not a lot, but it's definitely people that we would not have reached out if we hadn't moved our asses. So I think that's what really brands have to do. And we're going to double down on, on branding and marketing efforts in the next six months. We'll see how it goes for us. I mean, we have a very, very strong pipeline and we, we have the chance to be very diversified, actually. Something I was very often criti- criticized for by my um, peers uh, because, you know, we are active in so many different things, different countries, different industry. And it's always something that people kept on telling me, you need to focus, you need to focus. You cannot yeah. be an agency doing hotel and industry and luxury and education and personal branding. Well, right now, I'm very glad that, that we have doing this because uh, some industries are picking up, some are not. Are not and, and we have those levels. You know, would you work with tobacco companies? Would you work with <laughs> arms? You know, what, where do you draw the line in terms of the ethics? Of- yeah, we, we, don't draw, we don't work for tobacco and um, anything weapon related. That's a strict no, which we had to turn down a couple of times. And it, it actually would, you know, from a fees point of view, you know, they, they pay you for your uh, loss of soul. So it's very profitable. But then you're going to tell me, well, if you work for UBS, which we do, well, some of the money they invest is maybe not in the best place. So then for us, it's very, very hard to draw the line. We tend to have better conditions for companies that have that are involved in sustainable development. So we want to emphasize that. But having a clear cut and saying anybody who's not in a sustainable development we don't work with, for instance, well, it's economically not viable. So yeah, it's a bit of um, you 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 quote me a little bit here because us, I think, as a, as an industry, this is the marketing and branding industry as a whole, we are really guilty for uh, 
the the state of the world in which we are, right? Because if you look at global warming, which now is no longer a topic because there's something called COVID-19, but if you look at global glo uh, global warming, this is so much linked to overconsumption, right? If people were not traveling that much, buying so much clothes and eating so much beef, we would not have a problem. And the reason why they're buying so much is because they're in incentivized to do so by the branding and the marketing industry. So yes, we are not the one who pull the trigger, but we provide the gun. Part of the of the solution to that overconsumption will be marketing related, right? I mean, we're going to have to create a new narrative. The, the problem at the moment is the whole narrative about, um, let's say, green consumption is only, it's a very negative narrative, basically saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, yep. don't do that. And this is really so not attractive. And if you, if I tell you, oh, think about a sustainable fashion brand, for instance, they kind of all look the same and you have this image of, you know, something with a linen, badly cut, and then you look like some sort of hippie. So the association of ideas linked to anything sustainable are not sexy. So how can we re-engineer the narrative, change the story, so that we can emphasize consumption that are more reasonable? You know, I mean, if you, if you uh, do much more wellness and meditation, this is consumption, but it's not hurting the planet. So I think yep. there's a lot of things that can, that can be done uh, at that level. And we've been doing a bit of work with uh, Climate Kick, which is one of the major um, European uh, agencies, uh, which is funding and giving grants to um, sustainable projects. And we really saw the potential because, you know, it's people in those industries, they are so, they are in there because they want to make a difference. And so they think that their value proposition is the fact that they're making a difference. And this is true for a very, very small niche audience. But from the mass, it's not the case. I met a couple of uh, years ago, uh, I think, the co-founder of Fairphone. I don't know if you've heard about Fairphone. It's basically yeah. a smartphone that uses like, material that are sourced responsibly, not, uh, not destroying the planet. But the whole pitch they have is, we are, we are nice and we are fair. And I told him, well, the problem is that I said, who are your clients? And he said, well, 70% of our clients are people with PhDs. So highly educated people who think the cause matter, which is great, but you're not going to make an impact. Because in order to make an impact, you need to get the mass. And the problem, as sad as it is, is that the mass will not react to a message of uh, restriction. So uh, the, the message needs to be different. The answer is probably not to consume less, but to consume more sustainably, right? Yeah, consume more sustainably, consume things that don't necessarily need uh, resources. Yep. If you consume education, for instance, if you consume lentils instead of beef, if you consume uh, super fancy uh, secondhand shops like they have in Tokyo, it's different, right? So I think there's a lot that can be done at that level. And it's not, I make it sound like it's very easy to solve while there's actually so many different forces and dynamics in that, in that question, but... I think that's at least the contribution that the branding industry can do to that. I think that's more honest yet. I want to talk to you about your business model because this is this is really interesting and, and it's um it's something that we have talked about quite a lot on this podcast, right? Which is essentially you're moving away from a sort of, you know, a static kind of hierarchical model to something which is much, much more networked, right? Because so I'll give you the chance to sort of describe how it works. But basically if I'm in the marketing team for a company, the likelihood is that over time my skill set's gonna, you know, gonna diminish because I'm not challenged because I'm working for the same company doing the same thing every day, right? And then there's, and then you've, what you've also understood is that there's a sort of, there's a gap, right? If I, if I try to sort of unbundle my, my marketing team and source them using freelancers via Upwork, then I still have to manage the overhead of managing all those people. 
And so what you're doing is you're sort of creating some sort of a platform that mediates and transfers risk from both parties, right? Because because you're matching the best companies with the best creative talent, but you're doing it in a way where you take responsibility for the deliverables, you uh, take responsibility to make sure the people that work on your platform are, are, um, are looked after financially in terms of their mental health and so on. So it's 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 like you know it's like a new category of platform company that. Of, of which there aren't many examples yet, is the way I would describe it. How would you describe it? I think we're definitely a hybrid, actually, in the sense that we do work with uh, independent creative. I tend not to use the word platform because um, it's too associated to a kind of peer-to-peer type of model, and we don't offer this. Uh, clients who work with us don't get to choose which designer they work with, right? So we don't have, we're not a matchmaker. We, uh, the best we come up with so far is that we are a branding company as far as it as it goes and the fact that we work with this this creative network is just about how we do it the client need to come to us because they trust creative supply to be the best partner for their branding needs and how we make this happen to an extent is secondary it's secondary because we run the entire project from strategy to implementation we project manage it if there are problems on uh, client side or actually creative side, we handle that. So from a client, it's super smooth. They will never have the feeling that they are working with independent creatives. You know what I mean? They don't get that feel. So yeah, we, we bridge both worlds uh, because we can access to really, really skilled specialists. You know, let's say top 3D guy, motion design, copywriting, translation yeah. services, uh, illustrators is a good one. and But even graphic designer, because... A graphic designer who is very good for a food festival is not going to be the best person for a, a corporate website for a bank. Yeah. But most of the traditional agency, they are stuck with one or two art directors, you know, a bit like the famous chef in the kitchen. And then they all they just sell the same person over and over and over again. And then one day the art director leaves and they have uh, no design capacity anymore. And uh, this is something we wanted to avoid from the beginning. That we work with a pool of different people who have different skill set, different interests. You know, we have people who are really good art director, but they just cannot do web. But that's fine because we have someone else who can do web, etc. And this this really allows us to assemble, like, genuinely the right team for a client. And because we don't have a hidden agenda of selling certain skills or discipline because we have to pay for it. Because, you know, we sell it first and then we source them in a way. The, the way it works is very nice because we have standardized all our processes, you know, in terms of, what type of, pro- of products, uh, of services we sell, what is the process for a brand platform, a brand entity. All of these things have been super streamlined. You know, so we're like a product company in-house. Uh, the timing it needs, the number of rounds of review, et cetera. And all the people who work with us, you know, down to how you save your files, everything has been streamlined, which means that we can now actually just, just a couple of hours before our call, I had a, a kickoff with a, a team of, I think it's seven people, uh, for a new project, and everybody's remote, and uh, everybody's on board, understanding what's going to be happening, etc. So we we have the capacity to have very big creative team, like the biggest agency, right? You never have to yep. move more than ten people because it's just it's just not needed, uh, even for very very big projects. And uh, and we have that that capacity. And what's amazing about this is that now we have these ten people working on something. Tomorrow we have another big project that we have. We don't have a major capacity issue because we have a pool of people. Where we get the bottleneck is in the project management and the core consulting team in Zurich. So far, we're managing and the company will grow 
will grow its core as we go. So yeah, I think it's it's a very good model and the client love it because you know they have one point of contact. There's, there's one email yep. address and they say, hey, we need to do some 3D renderings for our new machine. Oh, we need to do a photo shoot uh, for our new uh, offices. Oh, we have some transition done to be done. And they know that we pick the best people. So they come to us and the quality is there, the pricing is right. Uh, yes, there's a premium of price, but you pay the premium for what? Because you reduce the perceived risk. Now, you, of course, all of them know about Upwork. But uh, if you try to book a designer on Upwork, good luck. You're going to spend half a day just sorting out, another yep. half a day discussing with them, half a day to brief them, but then you're not even sure if they get it. And then it works if you're a small startup, makes total sense. If you are a small, uh, mid to big, mid-sized company or big company, it just doesn't make any sense to do this. You better have a strong partner that handles this for you. Um, 100% because you don't know if they're good or not. So you don't save any time there. And then when you actually want them to do something, as you say, that no, there's, you have to brief them. So there's no time saving with the, the briefing. And then if you want to make them part of a team, then you have to assemble all the other parts of the team. And then you have the overhead of managing that team and managing the output. And so, so it's like, yeah, it, it, Upwork for me doesn't, doesn't work. I think it works for very specific clients. Or, or very specific projects, very, yeah. very, you know, very narrowly defined projects. But w- where you really want to run, run marketing at scale or branding at scale, it, it, it doesn't work. Yeah, because, you know, I, I mean, if you think about it, if you have a company, you don't want to rely on random people to do your brand. You know, it's a bit like who handles your files? You know what I mean? Yeah. Is this secure? If you need something, is the guy on holiday or is he still around or is he not doing a freelancing uh, world tour? You know what I mean? You don't want that as a partner. You need something that's more stable. And that's the role that creative have for those clients. But I also think the um, converse, which is, you know, everybody works for me, is on my payroll, doesn't work either, right? Because as you say, the, you know, you don't have access to a large enough pool of people to, to deliver everything that a customer might want or everything your, your, your company might want. And secondly, the people that work for you, because they, because they, don't, have, they don't see the variety of, of, of projects, you know, they stop learning and they stop developing new skills. And so I think you've, it's got to be, you've got to create this arbitrage, right? You've got to, there's got mm. to be, you know, I don't know if, as you say, you're uncomfortable with the word platform, but there's got to be some party that sits between that sits between the body of freelancers and the corporates. In, and, any, case, in any case, you need it. And either it's yeah. the client who does it directly, or it has to be someone like us who handles it for for big projects or mid-sized projects for sure. Was it like on your part a major insight that you know if you want to get the best people, then you know you have to you have to look outside of your company? You know, it's funny. Um, it, it's very personal, actually, because I, I started my career in a, in a small consulting firm where I, I was one of the junior partners, etc. So it was a very traditional type of company. And then I moved to a, let's say, big branding agency. And I only stayed two months and I just quit the, the place. And, this, and, I, and I realized at that point that the agency model is dead. And I, yeah. it took me two months. Actually, it took me a week, but then I tried to convince myself for the, la- the remaining weeks that it was still okay. But then I realized there's no point. Because, you know, the typical agencies, everybody shows up on Monday, there's a brief, then everybody has a lunch together on this big, long communal table, and then there's beer ping pong on Friday afternoon. And if you look, that's the cliche of a creative agency. And from Sydney to Shanghai, they have the same pitch. And I was like, this is so weird. We as branding company, we are meant to help our clients stand out, yet we all communicate in the exact same way. We do the exact same thing than all of our competitors. How can we be trusted by our clients to help them stand out if we're not able to do it for ourselves? 
you know, it's like all the people who try to sell me digital services, but I have more LinkedIn followers than they have. I'm a bit like, hmm, not sure yeah. I can trust you on that. And, and, and then I saw all those people who are so comfortable in the job. You know, you have the creative, you know, he's a bit there, a bit coffee, a bit chill, and then the copywriter and they're a bit chill. And nobody has their ass on fire because they're hired. And, if you, and so the connection between the work you do and the results gets loosened up. It's even more true in a big company, but even already in an agency of 30, 40 people, you see it. You know, and then people have to fill in sheets of uh, timesheets. They have to say, oh, on Monday morning, I work four hours on this project. So everybody's cheating on those sheets to make sure they look like they're doing some work, right? Because you don't want to be the one that has not the right profitability ratio, as they call it. And I was thinking, this is so dumb. It's treating people like children. It's making sure they're very comfortable. So when people are comfortable, they're not out of their comfort zone, which means they don't get creative. And at the end, they don't develop themselves. And they're just going to, you know, be there. So I quit that whole thing. And then I promised myself that I would never go back to uh, any agency that, that works with this. And then I thought, that's, I, I need to create mine. And uh, that's, that's how Creative Supplier was born, actually. It was born out of frustra a frustrating experience, which gave me the, the courage, if I'm honest, the courage to go out and say, well, let, let's do this. And then I, I went out there and I, I really looked for people. And it took me so much time, you know, meet the creatives. You know, you have to feel them, you have to test them. Some are good, some are bad, some say they're good, but they're not, you know. And until I, I build that team, which now can grow, because, you know, people know good people and the people go new people. So now, yeah. it's very, now it's very easy to grow. The beginning was tough, but now it's very, very easy. And once we had that, now we're able to deliver projects. And it's funny because I see sometimes uh, those agencies that were on my radar as dream employer when I'm like five to six years ago. And now we are winning pitches against them because we have a proposition which is to some client more attractive. Some client, the more, the more conservative one, are very hesitant because they're a bit like, wait, but your creative team is in Paris. How does it work, etc. But you know, it's a very good filtering mechanism because the client yeah. who react that way, we know they're not for us. Because if they cannot accept already this, how are they going to accept that we will transform the business with Brandneck? It's too much. So they're out already. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to revisit the conversation we had earlier, or in any way undermine the importance of branding. But what you're telling me, and I totally agree with, is that you've got a business model that's winning in a market because it's superior to the, everybody else's business model because it's based on you know a distributed workforce that enables you to get just access to better people at scale. Yeah, that's it. And that allows us to scale as well. Yeah. Because uh, if now you tell me, oh, we have uh, three major projects coming in tomorrow, well, I'm going to be in a rush for three, four days just to arrange the project plan and the line up the resource. But after that, uh, we can run it. There's no problem. On time, on track, because everything has been... So, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, in a way, you're bringing a sort of, you know, a sort of digital phenomenon to the non-digital world in a way, right? Because... You know, why, why is Amazon so successful? Because it delivers better quality at scale. And it's, very, it's kind of difficult to do that in a service industry, but that's what you're doing. You're, you, you know, you're taking a technology business model and applying it to a service industry, and that's why it's, it's, you know, it's, it's trumping the others. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's fully done yet because I think we have so much room for growth ahead, you know. And saying that this is done now, it would, it would be... Yeah. It would not Hubris. be correct. Yeah, it's not like it's all done and now we can just relax. I think from a back-end point of view, from a, you know, it's always in development, you know, from how you communicate with the team, how your quality, quality control is a huge topic with us, yeah. you know. You know, how do you make sure that the designer don't misspell the client name? You know, those very simple things, so operational. You know, those 
how to make sure that the consultant put the right date on the documents. You know, in those little things, at the moment, the core consulting team spends too much time policing around. So we will have to, to the client doesn't say this because at the end we deliver something that's great. But for, on our point of view, we could be much more optimal. So I think that's where this whole internal streamlining has to, has to get much, much, much better. But, you know, we are so much far ahead and, and so much of, of our competitor, I think, because they are now they're just, you know, after the coronavirus, I think a lot of agencies are just in panic because they don't have their uh, usual place where they all meet. Uh, the canteen is no longer there. Uh, all their files were on an internal folder. Some of the employees don't even have their own computer, so they used to work on a desktop. You know, and you have all that thing, and now it's, they must be so challenged. And for us, it's a bit like business as usual, you know. And how do you create? A, how do you create a sense of belonging with the team mm. that's distributed? Yeah, we we spoke about that. The, the choice we've made early on is to not to pick creatives from everywhere because you know the, the tempting thing to be say, oh, let's get creatives from anywhere, right? Because we can, we can. But there's a couple of problems with this. The first one is a uh, time zone problem, right? If you have uh, the best guy in Mexico in Shanghai, good luck to, uh, coordinating the project uh, because we mainly work in Europe. The second one is, from a cultural point of view, it's nice if people can, can see each other sometimes. So we made the deliberate choice to build the creative network in Paris. Paris, because it's our second strongest market after Switzerland. And because the, the, the level of people you get in Paris is so high. There's so much competition that if you are an art director in Paris and you survive, you must be good. In Switzerland, you just sit there. And you know, uh, if you are in Zurich, you know uh, Stefan, Fabian, and Urs, and uh, you went to school together, and you charge everybody 200 bucks an hour, and nobody blinks, because the market is so protectionist. If you're in Paris, you cannot do this. If you're in Paris, you must deliver. And that's why we build a network in Paris, which allows us to actually have 90% more or less of the creatives in Paris. So typically, we can do every year a Christmas party in Paris. We bring all of them together. Every now and then we have meetups where not always everybody meets, right? But some people meet in, in physically in Paris, etc. You know, this whole Zoom lifestyle that uh, the whole world is used to now is actually very strong, you know, in building a culture. You know, you have the internal Slack channel, etc. cetera. Uh, so it, it's not that bad. You know, if you take a big company, yes, you have your colleague that you see every day, but you don't see your CEO every day, right? So I think... I think we manage it fairly well. In the future, I would love to be able to offer much more value to the people who are the member of our network, right? So that can we offer them discount on further ed education? You know, what are the things that we could offer them? Could we help them with their uh, accounting, for instance? You know, what yep. could be this yep. this service we could offer? Not not as a revenue source for us, but more as a strengthening the link we have with our people. Because, you know, you have people we've been working with for four or five years now. And... And it's going strong and they just love it. They still do their thing sometimes next to it. They sometimes have their client, their own project, but they like creative supply because it gives them access to projects they could never get otherwise. Yeah, and, and you take care of the customer acquisition, right? So that in, yeah, that exactly. They have to do this. And then, you know, when the client don't pay on time, which happens at the moment 95% uh, <laughs> of the time, uh, we are running after the bills. But we are paying the creatives on time. So, yeah, this, uh, it's, it's a full, it's a very, it's a win-win situation for everyone, actually. Definitely. Great. Thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak to us. Thanks, Ben. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.